0: This will be, what, our fourth session, Biblical Foundations for All Things. I gave you a long introduction, and we looked at several issues related to foundations. One of the things that we stressed and focused on were worldviews and What we're doing in this class is working our way and giving a lot of detail concerning what the biblical worldview is, and as we go through it, we'll contrast other worldviews, probably most often the one that's prominent in our culture, which would be secular humanism, because it dominates pretty much the culture politically, socially, educationally, just about every area. There's other worldviews, but not as dominant as the secular one. So worldviews gave you a pretty good feel for that. And you can consider pretty much everything that we're talking about as just different elements to the biblical worldview, more detail to it.
1: Oh, Cher, I want to share. I had the opportunity to share my worldview. Oh. Not in, in total, but at my water class, the young uh, 18-year-old instructor said, Oh, yeah, sometimes my mom calls me an ape. I said, Really? He says, Well, yeah, I yeah. am. And I said, No, you're not. He goes, "Well, oh, yeah, I yeah. am. And I said, Uh-uh. The way I read my Bible, you are not an ape. And I right. was created distinctly different.
0: Right. And he just kind of looked
1: at me and looked away. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the
0: conversation was not going to go any farther. Like, yeah, he goes where I stand. All right. Very good. So we looked at worldviews. I gave you something of a complete philosophy of history, although I think it had all the major elements of any philosophy of history. And in that, we've been stressing that when we speak of history, and I will continue to stress when we speak of history, that the Bible basically is world history, and the biblical worldview are that the biblical events are basically the foundational, fundamental, and most important events of world history. And we will continue to develop that and show that as we work our way through. And just to kind of support that idea, let me just give you a couple of other verses. We looked at Acts chapter 17 where we developed that, that biblical philosophy of history. But we also have several passages all over Scripture, some of the most prominent ones besides that, Act 17, is Isaiah 46. So let me look at it. And remember the context of this, this is at a time when the nation of Israel, which I've said before, is prominent in world history. In fact, that is what God is dealing with as a nation of Israel. Even the church is something of a parenthesis in relationship to the nation of Israel. And this is written at a time when the nation of Israel is declining, and shortly, a few years later, a couple of centuries later, the, the nation will in fact collapse. And the nation might think, well, if we're the center of all things, and we're on the verge, and Isaiah's going to predict some of those things, if we're going to collapse... This gives them also a a broader picture that even though the nation has failed, God will not. And what he says in verse 9, he says, Remember the former things long past. This is Israel. And probably what they need to remember is things like creation, fall, flood, scattering, Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, those things, Exodus. Remember those things. So he says, remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Now this was addressed to them because they were in the midst of idolatry. And then verse 10, God's still speaking, declaring the end from the beginning. There's world history from eternity past to eternity future, the end from the end to the beginning. From ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. There's a purpose behind history. And it will, in fact, be fulfilled. It will be established. And then verse 10 concludes, And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In other words, everything that God has planned in terms of world history, is going to accomplish. Everything that He's revealed... Everything that he's entered into covenant with, he will, in fact, establish and accomplish. Now, after the nation collapsed, we have another little glimpse in the book of Daniel, where the book of Daniel gives us Daniel's dealing with a pagan nation. And in that context, in the book of Daniel, God is now going to give authority... To non-Jewish people. He's going to give authority to pagan nations. So pagan nations are going to be prominent from this point on until God reestablishes Israel again. And we're living in that period of time where pagan nations pretty much dominate the world scene. That's why Israel is not the center right now. God is awaiting a time when he will restore them. So that's the context of the book of Daniel, and in the book of Daniel, in chapter 2, we basically have an outline of the rest of world history. So the Bible gives us a lot of these glimpses of kind of this plan of God, this, this picture of God's purposes and plan, and in this we have a vision of these kingdoms. These are non-believing, non-Jewish nations that will rise up. And this pagan, unbelieving king, who is dominant, and in fact, the world empire of that day, he will be that first Gentile, non-Jewish kingdom that will dominate. But then there's going to be three others that are going to replace him, eventually the Roman Empire. And in that context, notice what it says in verses 37 and 38. You, O king, are the king. This is Daniel kind of interpreting a dream that the king had. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. In other words, the ultimate sovereign of the universe has granted to Nebuchadnezzar this sovereignty, this dominion, this power for a period of time to accomplish certain purposes. And most of those purposes relate to not only Israel, but to the rest of the world as well. So Babylon was basically the world empire of that day. And then verse 38, and wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, what does that remind you of? Creation, dominion mandate. In other words, God is sovereign over all, but he delegates to men. First of all, Adam, now he's delegating to a pagan king who's not a believer. And it goes on. He has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. So we have kind of the working out of the dominion mandate or the creation mandate, I like to call it to a pagan king here towards the end of Israel's history. And it says, you are the head of gold in this image that is interpreted by Daniel. So you have Daniel chapter 7, and in this vision, he lays out the rest of world history. And notice in uh, chapter 4, verse 25, same king, it says, Now it's a prophecy concerning Nebuchadnezzar. God's going to humble him. And in verse 25, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. In other words, recognize that there's an ultimate sovereign greater than you, Nebuchadnezzar. And then the verse closes... And bestows it on whomever he wishes. So it's his desire, his plan, his sovereignty. And also in chapter four we have a picture of kind of the end of world history. Book of Daniel. Daniel four four thirty four and thirty five. But at the end of that period, this is the end of that fourth kingdom. Let's see, is that the right passage? No, that's not the passage I had in view. But this is Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, this is after his humbling, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. So he learned the lesson. He learned the lesson. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven. And notice, this is part of our worldview, there's not only things taking place on earth, but things that take place in the heavens, and God is ruler there as well. And among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? In other words, God is sovereign over history. That's one of the things that we developed in our world view and in our philosophy of history.
1: In that passage, does that mean we have life somewhere else? Say that, in that again. Passage life, that life pertaining to life somewhere
0: and Well there's a there's a realm outside the physical realm oh, is the point I mean like No, no, there's just a there's a spiritual realm where God dwells and there's other creatures there that God is ruling realm. over as well. And we'll be a part of that realm ultimately after world history. The verse I was thinking about earlier, and the one that I think also comes into play here, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that God is the ultimate sovereign. Now, after that last kingdom, there's going to be a final kingdom. That's in uh, chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of Heaven will set up a kingdom. Now, this is at the end of the pagan kingdoms. God's going to set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. All these others are destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar is destroyed destroyed by the Medo Persians. The Medo Persians destroyed by the Greeks. The Greeks destroyed by the Romans. And then there's a kind of a. Interim period, there's a revived Roman Empire, and then there's this last kingdom. And that kingdom will never be destroyed, and that kingdom, this is the kingdom of God, will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands as part of the vision, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to you, King, what will take place in the future, so that the, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So after these Gentile kingdoms are done, the kingdom of God... That's the millennial kingdom. That's the final, final, kingdom of world history. That's why I put it at the end of world history.
1: So my question was just kind of a convenient thing because when we look at that passage and um, and God said that He, the interpretation that He gives dominion, sovereignty. Yes. And stuff. Right. Um, so was actually God granting it to to King. And then you just say a power here you talk about right. this is his right. dominion.
0: Yes. Um, was
1: that given at another time? Was that or was this just a partial dominion over certain culture connecting that Netflix or had while within
0: its dominion Yes. the earth? Yes. Okay. The, the latter. Yeah. Yeah, once man f- fell, we forfeited some aspect of that dominion, not all of it but enough of it that Satan is called the god of this world. And then under it, in fact, Daniel also speaks, for example, Daniel 10 and other passages speak of these angelic creatures that basically have influence over nations. So the sovereignty is always limited, and there's kind of a hierarchy of sovereignty. God, ultimately sovereign over all. He permits Satan to have some sovereignty, and within that... Mankind and rulers have certain sovereignty as well, I guess. Analyze it correctly. So that's just a little bit of introduction to get us into what we will be looking at today. My goal today is to complete the exegetical portion and the implication portion of the creation event and we are looking at Genesis 1 and 2, and we completed Genesis 1 last time, and I, and we'll look at chapter 2 primarily today. And then the second major thing that I want to do is give you the apologetic portion relating to creation. And that apologetic portion, there'll be several areas, and we'll probably take up most of our time today. So, let's, Just continue where we somewhat left off last time. Again, we're looking at Genesis 1, In the Beginning God Created the Heavens and the Earth. That's the beginning of world history. And we looked all the way through Day 6 last time. And there's a lot of things in Day 6, not only dealing with land animals, but primarily man, where we have a lot of issues relating to man. And last time, this is still review. We looked at the nature of God from Genesis 1-1, beginning there, and we touched on some other aspects relating to the nature of God from Genesis 1. So that's kind of the starting point. We looked at the origin of language as a major implication. We looked at the nature of man, and we will continue touching on it in Genesis 2. In fact, we jumped ahead and looked at Genesis 2 there were a couple of words relating to our nature that are in that passage. We'll look at them again. The purpose of man, very important, and what's very important is this dominion mandate. That's why I kind of remind you with these passages where it works itself out in history. didn't go away. And we'll find out when we talk about the fall that we're hindered in terms of fulfilling that dominion mandate. So purpose of man... Create history of creation, we saw that last time. The early history of mankind, beginning in chapter 2, verses 4, through the end of chapter 3. This is just my outline of Genesis. Creation of man, beginning in verse 4 to 25. And that's pretty much where we left off last time. So in Genesis 1, we have foundations for all the physical sciences. We've seen already some of that for physics. We saw that even before day 1. Chemistry, verse 2, H2O is mentioned, and all the other elements. Uh, The elements of land masses, day three. Oceanography, that's one of the physical sciences. Geology, which we'll talk some more about when we get to the Genesis flood. So if you have vocations in any of these, you can glorify God and serve him in any area of these, if you develop a worldview and know how to glorify God through. Uh, geophysics is the study of the Earth geo. The distinction between geophysics and geology. Geology primarily deals with the crust of the Earth, and geophysics deals with the total planet and things related. Climatology Charlie Clough, by the way, is into in climatology, that's his expertise. And he very effectively serves God through his his work and has used it as a springboard to do a lot of direct ministry. Materials, the whole area of materials, dealing with properties of materials, usage of materials, harnessing of resources. Life sciences, botany, we saw that day three. Zoology, what day? Day five and six zoology. Day four are the heavenly bodies. Anthropology. What day is that one? Day six. Medicine. Mm. Where do we have the first?
1: Plants. That's possible, yeah.
0: Plants, herbs. There's actually a surgery, you might call it a surgery, that we have recorded in the early chapters there. You got it. Oh,
1: they're, they're,
0: they're yes. <laughs> Lana's got it. <laughs> Where did woman come from? Yeah, Divine surgery. There. Very good. Whole area of medicine. God's the first surgeon. God's the first laborer as well, because He works for six days. Yeah, the first, of everything. first of everything. Yeah. Yep. Medicine. All right. He even used anesthesia, uh, divine anesthesia, because he put the man to sleep. Even though this is before the fall, there's probably no pain, but it does say that he put him to sleep. He wanted him to see a gory mess, I guess. Biochemistry. That would have to be as early as day three. Genetics. Where did we touch on genetics? We touched on it several times. Genetics. Kinds. Very good. Men. Genetics. And by the way, genetics is a relatively new science. We're just now, in the last 50, 60 years, discovering what Genesis 1 is telling us all along. A whole area of agriculture, which brings a lot of disciplines together, a lot of sciences. Man is to subdue the earth. A very direct way is agriculture. Lots of foundations here. Any one of these could be a paper. Got some ideas now? How about mathematics? Linda's going to give us on that. You can <laughs> just, just now. We're saving it. The best for the end.
1: No, I mean, you never ever have it on any of the lists.
0: Yet mathematics is the foundation. Very I mean, good. You the foundation
1: of this thought? Yeah. Of the structure
0: of you. Right. Distinctions, numbers. In other words, counting. Oh, that too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) you're talking about calculus, right? (laughs) Okay, I want you to find calculus, biblical basis of calculus. All right. Yeah, God is the one. In fact, he divides time. In other words, time is measured. In fact, all of these sciences are heavily involved in measurements, distinctions that requires mathematics. Mathematics is not just something over here that just exists and God is over here and they're separate and distinct. Well, they are separate and distinct, but mathematics is not independent of God. Mathematics stems from the way God has created the universe. He's created a universe with order, with
1: measurability,
0: with repeatability, with symmetry, Mathematics simply measures all of those things. So mathematics stems from God's creation. We saw language and linguistics. And we're going to see, as we move further, culture. So every area of thought, foundations, history. That's the main theme of this course. we
1: we'll see it, but there's already culture in He's telling
0: Adam, is, Very good. Yeah. I mean, that's culture. Well, fruitfulness... Which implies families, reproduction, and more, more families later on. Yes. So that's where culture comes. Yeah, Genesis 1. Very good. History. Where does history start? In the beginning. In the beginning. Very good. In the beginning. That's the beginning of history. Creation is a historical event. Got it. And what's the queen of sciences? It's not called that anymore, but it used to be the Queen of Sciences. Does anybody know what the Queen of Sciences is? It's not mathematics either. <laughs> What's the Queen of Sciences? Does anybody know your history? Theology. Theology is the queen. Yeah, theology. That's how theology was described in shortly after the Reformation. I think. And maybe later, but the older theologians call theology the queen of the sciences. Okay. Have I convinced you that uh, Genesis 1 is foundational? If we ended our course right now, would we be able to say that that uh, this course covers the foundation of all things? Yes. All right. And we haven't even finished. We still have, what, yes. a few more weeks. We're almost done. Okay. Some of the implications. We looked at the nature of God. We've seen the origin of language, where language comes from. We've seen the nature of man, what man is all about. We went through that briefly. We looked at the purpose of man, very important. Man is to glorify God, and he is to perform in certain areas. He's to reproduce. He's to create families. And he's also, we just completed the aspect of subduing the earth, which involves all of those Aspects. All of the areas of vocation. And there's the purpose to glorify God, the institution of the family, subduing of the earth. And we have these social conventions already established. Divine institutions. According to the secularists, they are arbitrary. Changing. Therefore, you can redefine marriage and family, according to the secularists. But we would say, no, we have divine institutions, and if you tamper with these divine institutions, you are going to destroy culture. And this this arbitrary changing aspect is very rapidly moving in our culture. It's
1: really crazy, because every industry
0: is the same over and over, I mean, but it's all the same. There is nothing going on Yep. It is crazy. It's insane. But... Our culture doesn't see that craziness. These are divine institutions, and we have at least two of them in Genesis chapter 1. These are God's design. This is the way God has built the world, and particularly culture. God built them, and there are consequences with tampering with divine institutions. That's why I've said culture, will. yep, we are in big trouble. So day six, summary of day six, fixity of kinds, we saw that with the animals, mammals and reptiles on the same day, which is out of evolutionary sequence, distinction of mankind, man's not just another animal, origin of anthropology on day six, and at the very end we had divine evaluation on some of the days, but then in verse 31, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Very good creation. That was that adverb used? Very good.
1: Is that is that what the Hebrew pronounced very good? I'm
0: trying to think. What is it? could be an infinitive absolute. I'm not sure. Yeah. Very good creation. This is huge. I'm going to kind of expand upon this idea and its significance when we get to Genesis 3 in the fall. So that's primeval history, the beginning of it, history of creation, chapter 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, creation of the universe, verse 1, six days of creation through verse 31, then in chapter two we have a seventh day of rest, not because God got tired and needed to kind of catch up on some sleep, but we'll see when we talk about the law, he's set the pattern already for humanity. Six days of work and on the seventh day rest. So this anticipates the, the giving of the law. And we ought to probably look at those two verses there. Chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. In other words, the earth has not only been given form, remember it was without form, and it's also been filled with creatures, and before it was empty or void, but now it's filled with creatures. Then verse 2, and by the seventh day God completed his work which goes against progressive creationism. The word is completed. The work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified. In other words, set that day apart. And under Moses, that day will be set apart to distinguish Israel in its worship on the seventh day and set that day apart, sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. There's another use of bara, by the way. In fact, you have both words. Bara is work which God created, bara and made. Remember the other Hebrew word? Hebrew vocabulary? You guys didn't get your vocabulary? Asa. Chapter 2, introduces, and beginning in verse 4, something that radical scholars, unbelieving scholars, have used to undermine Genesis, the beginning of liberalism. These scholars notice that chapter 1 has some characteristics that are different from some of the characteristics of chapter 2. And they have viewed two creation accounts, which we would say there's only one creation account. One is an expansion and an emphasis of one aspect that is in uh, the first creation account, and I don't even like to distinguish the two. But what these liberal scholars, this is the beginning of liberalism, they began a process that ended up ultimately with totally abandoning the whole Bible, but it began with an undermining of Genesis 1. Today we're seeing something similar in the scientific, in more conservative circles, where Genesis 1 is essentially being undermined as well using science. And that's why I make such a big point in terms of coming to the scriptures first and then forming science rather than the other way around. I think the same thing is happening and is this permeating further into the church. It is how history, these times,
1: thought that everything... Around the earth,
0: though, because of the creation of the focus on the earth. Right. You can see why people come to that conclusion. Right. Right. And scientific theories change as you get more data, sure. and Christians can be corrected as well. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let me give you what these scholars observed. Notice in Genesis one, when it speaks of God, what does it say? Elohim. Every time. I think it occurs like 33 times. And God said, God blessed, you know, God placed the heavenly bodies, Elohim, 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 only Elohim. Notice what happens beginning in verse 4. This is the account, in other words, another account of the the heavens and earth when they were created in that day that... Do you you notice the difference there? 2-4. In the day that the, what, Lord God, do you notice that? Lord God made earth and heaven. Is that Yahweh? Yahweh, very good. Yahweh Elohim. And if you look from verse 4, throughout chapter 2, it's never just Elohim, it's Yahweh Elohim. Well, the scholars noticed... Yahweh Elohim and then in verse five in the middle there, for the Lord God or Yahweh Elohim had not sent rain. Uh, verse seven, thus Yahweh Elohim, verse eight and Yahweh Elohim, and on and on and on it's always Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, as it's translated. They notice that and then they begin to pick up little other differences and they say we have two creation accounts. Therefore, we have at least two different authors of the book of Genesis, and they work this way out. The doc, what's called the documentary hypotheses, which has, by the way, been totally discredited by archaeology, for one thing. But this started the whole idea of liberalism, and it started by the undermining of Genesis 1 and 2, and the whole movement of liberalism that went and took, kept doing, kept moving this dire, in this direction, And after they undermined Genesis 1 and 2, they went through the rest of the Bible and totally undermined the rest of the Bible, such that liberalism today just basically throws out the Bible altogether. started with that. Well, the answer to it in simplicity here is archaeology has has demonstrated that what we have in Genesis 1 and 2 parallels other literature that was written at the same time as when Moses would have composed this document. And it's very common, the parallel is, is oftentimes in literature like this, you have kind of a a broad account of some phenomenon, a broad picture like we have in Genesis 1. We have the six days. And then we have another account or a parallel account that in fact focuses in on the most important aspect of that broader picture. And that's very common in ancient Near Eastern literature that is similar to what Moses wrote. And that's exactly what we have. Chapter 2 is an expansion of the creation of man, and everything is related to man. And the reason we have Yahweh Elohim, Elohim is the God that is distinct and separate, the creator God. Yahweh is the God that enters into covenant and has relationships with the creature. So in chapter 2, we have Yahweh because he enters into relationship with man. He speaks with, he creates man, he speaks with him, he gives man responsibility. So we have the immanence of God. Yahweh stresses the immanent aspect of God. Elohim stresses the distinct and transcendent aspect. Chapter 2, we have both. We have the God that is the creator, distinct, transcendent God, but we also have the God that interacts with the creation and enters into relationship with him. So there's a lot of other things where we don't have two accounts. We have an account that supplements and expands, That the second one expands the first, and the second one assumes the first and just simply adds to it and gives more detail. And there's some elements in the second that are not present because hes it's got a different purpose. It's to focus on who man is. And you can harmonize the supposed contradictions. These uh, scholars point out the differences, but they can be harmonized. And what they are is these are complementary contrasts that complement one another. They're not evidence of different authorship. Let me give you a summary. We won't look in as much detail in Genesis 2 as we did in Genesis 1. In fact, from here on out, there'll be some passages that we focus more on than others, and in some cases, because there's a lot of material in some areas, we can only spend limited time and we won't be able to look at every verse. So in chapter 2, let's just summarize a few things. We looked at at the beginning of Chapter 2 gives us the seventh day Sabbath, which we looked at last time. And chapter 2, I mentioned also last time, is an expansion of day 6. An expansion of what God gave us in summary form on day 6 in chapter 1. And again, chapter 2 is still the pre-fall world. So everything is still very good. Although it's interesting, it does refer to something that is not good in chapter 2. But it's not good, not in the sense of evil, but more... We'll look at that verse, verse 19. But more in the sense of incompleteness. So it's not complete yet. So this is all pre-fall world. And these are some of the conditions. At the end of chapter 1, we have everything very good. Everything's very good. Now, we can't even imagine... What a world would look like, because we have no way of relating to a world where there's no decay, there's no degeneration, there's no evil, there's no sin, everything is very good. And that involves the uh, physical world as well. This is very, very important in our worldview. Verse five, let's read it. First thing it mentions: "Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth." Now, he's not talking in totality. Now, the critics, remember I gave you a little brief introduction to how the critics kind of see two accounts here, and they camp on these differences between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And they say, ah, okay, look, there's no, everything's out of order, it's not the same. And in verse 5, it says that there's no shrub of the field. Well, what it's dealing with is with a particular portion of the earth that is going to be expanded on later on. Probably refers to the garden that God is going to give responsibility to man. So that garden has not been cultivated and planted yet. So that's, I think, what verse 5 is referring to. It's not talking about, okay, day 3 hasn't taken place yet. Remember, it's day 3 where we have shrubs and other plants. So, he says, uh, no shrubs of the earth, of the field, was yet in the earth. A lack of plants, no plant of the field had yet sprouted. And I think, again, this is in a limited, isolated part of the earth. For the Lord had not sent rain, so there's a lack of rain. And it seems like there's a lack of rain until we come to the flood. We'll talk a little bit about that at the flood. And verse 5 also says, there was no man to cultivate the ground. Now, it doesn't mean that God had not created man yet, but God had not put man in that environment. So he's kind of summarizing, kind of preparation for what he's going to do with man as he begins to give man the responsibility of ruling over the earth. And then in verse 6, we have that, or 5, that lack of a cultivator, one that will cultivate the ground. That's the end of verse 5. In verse 6, we have the garden of the Lord, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And in verses 8 and 9, we have the garden. But before we get there, let's take a look. Then the Lord God in verse 7. I alluded to this verse when we looked at the image of God and the nature of man. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground. So we have the creation of man. Let's look at it in verse 7. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That was that Hebrew word that I gave you last time that indicates God basically putting spirit In fact, in Hebrew, the word spirit and wind is the same. It's the same word. Remember that word? God breathed in or put in to man that breath of life. And that distinguishes man from all of the rest of the creation and all of the animal kingdom as well. Then notice it says, and man became what? A, you know the word? A living being, or what's your Hebrew? Nefesh. Very good, very good. So the word, when it says in verse 7, formed, this is the word of a potter that takes clay and molds it. And the Hebrew word is yatsar. And in most contexts, it's used uh, molding something or shaping something like a potter would. In this case, it just tells us that God is intimately involved in the shaping and forming of mankind. It's used of a potter, it's used of a goldsmith dealing with gold, shaping it, forming it. And in this context, it's used of God himself in relationship to mankind. And then we have a creation mandate. That's verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So now we have the cultivator, the one that's going to rule over this garden. And out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. This is within the garden. This is within that context. That is mentioned in verse 8. The Lord planted a garden toward the east. So it's a particular, specific location. East in Eden. So it's not the entire planet yet. God had intended for man to deal with a portion. And as he multiplies and fills the earth, then his descendants will occupy the rest of the planet. That seems to be God's intention. So, verse nine. So he caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two very important trees are called attention to, and in the next two verses are these peculiar rivers. Now, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold, and the gold of that land is good. Dalium and Anyatstone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, what's important about those, this is a historical account. We're going to talk about attacks on Genesis later on. Little details like this tell you there are specific places with specific name, with specific descriptions that have physical characteristics. This is not once upon a time. This is not mythical. This is historical narrative. These rivers, however, are peculiar. They're, they're unusual. Did you notice anything about them? What's peculiar about these rivers? They all flow out of the. Okay, they flow out. Okay. River, yeah, that's strange. Rivers in the way that we understand rivers—basically, you have uh, rivers that come out of a mountain into streams, and they join and they meet, and eventually they end up in the ocean. That's the way we have rivers today. So they flow into larger. Rivers and bodies of of water. This river, somehow, it has kind of a source of some sort, and it goes in four different directions, which is a little bit strange. We'll come back to this when we talk about the Genesis flood, because there's going to be conditions after the Genesis flood that are radically different from before. That's one of the points I'm going to make. And this is one of the things that we'll look at. just thought I'd mention it just ahead of time. Okay, what we're really interested in, however, at this point, is verses 15 and 16. But first of all, we have this creation mandate. And notice that creation mandate in verses 8 and 9 is somewhat an expansion of what we had in Genesis 1, verse 28. Now man is to care for and take care of this part of the earth that God gave him. He has sovereignty over it. He's to take care of it. He's to manage it. He's to harness it. He's to subdue it. And then we have the command, because man is, has volition. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. There's the creation mandate. And then 16, the command, and the Lord God commanded the man saying... From any tree, and notice that. We'll come back to that when we get to Genesis 3. From any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. In other words, you have these thousands of trees. I don't know how many fruit trees there are in existence today, but all of them, and maybe even more, may have been present in this garden. And God says, from any of these trees, thousands of them, you can eat. Till you get sick. (laughs) Of course, there's no sickness before the fall. But you can eat and eat and eat. Eat freely. That's an infinitive absolute. And what an infinitive absolute, it uses the noun form and the verb form together. And it has the idea is you can eat eating. In other words, just keep on eating. You can eat by keep on eating. That's the idea of it there translate it freely to give you that idea of this ongoing, just however much you want. And the reason I'm highlighting this is because the language is going to be changed when we get to Genesis chapter 3. Language is going to be distorted. And, And keep in mind, a lot of these details are going to be different after the fall, and they'll be different after the flood. That's one of the main points I'm going to make as well. But, what I'm stressing here is just the, uh, the abundance available and the freeness of being able to eat. This will come back. I'll remind you of it. And then in verse 17, we just have one restriction. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you shall, and we have a similar construction here, you shall surely die. It's another infinitive absolute in the Hebrew text. And you have the noun for death and the verb for dying together. So the idea is you will die dead is the idea of the, word, the infinitive absolute. Kind of,
1: kind, of, kind of an
0: absolute? Infinitive absolute in Hebrew. So that's the idea. Uh, and in the day that you eat from it, you shall sure, you shall surely die or you shall die dead. In other words, you will be done
1: say infinitive absolute
0: is the same eat, eating mm-hmm. die again, so that the, construct, the grammatical construction are described as infinitive absolutes. Different words, right, right. different words, yeah.
1: But it's the idea of...
0: Eating, you, or eat...
1: Continuous, I mean, yeah. that, this is a way that I plan to take care of you, and then dying, shall so surely die... Means that it is going to continue to happen. That can
0: also mm, understand the infinitive absolute. Yeah, the infinitive absolute doesn't necessarily. It, what it's stressing is more the definiteness of it. In both cases, in other words, the eating is just as much as you want to, and the dying is, you know, final and 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 definite. The definiteness is more the stress on it. Oh, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and oh the tree of life the tree as well. Of life it could, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that'll come into play in Genesis three as well. We'll come back to that as well. Very very good observation. So that's the command, because man is not made as a robot. He has volition, and he God desires a relationship with man that is free. And Adam and Eve were free. At free volition. And I would say they're the only ones that really have free volition, except for Jesus Christ. But that's a theological conclusion. Go up on that some other day. And very importantly, we have creation of woman. And in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good. For the very first time, something's not good. And it's more of a situational not good in, in that the The creation is incomplete without woman. Not necessarily evil, but incomplete.